Greetings. Welcome to Calvary Christian Fellowship. Good to see everybody. Y'all doing well? Yeah. Um, all right. So we're gonna um, we're gonna j- jump right in. Let's open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll we'll get going. Father, we bless you. We lift this evening before you and pray that you uh, lead and guide our conversation together as we open up your word together. Help us in this uh, this study tonight to um, understand what it is that that you have put in your word. Help us to unpack it to 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 have it make sense to us and and to make a difference in our lives to see how these things apply to our lives we bless you uh pray for all those who are here those who are traveling those who are away tonight um speak blessing over them and thank you uh for these things in jesus name amen all right good to see you Uh, all right so um we are doing a study through this book called i dare you not to bore me with the bible um, it's a it's a book by a scholar named Michael Heiser. This is our tenth tenth lesson. Um, if I highly recommend getting the book, um, it's a really good book to read. Um, uh, what the the premise of it is is what what um, what Heiser does is he was a, he was a Bible college professor and uh, he's a biblical scholar and he took as when he was teaching uh, his Bible courses he was like super excited because. He really enjoyed studying the scriptures and, and, and digging in and finding things. And he thought, wow, a whole class full of people who want to be here to study this, they're all excited. And he found like most of his students had been Christians for a long period of time and felt like they had heard it all over and over again and were not excited about the class at all. He's like, how can you not be excited? So it became a challenge to him. So I dare you not to bore me with the Bible is kind of a challenge to say, look, there are a lot of things in the Bible. They, they seem strange or weird or hard to interpret or why is that in there? And they're important. They're hugely important. And so he put this book together as, as uh, it kind of takes a, a, a several of these passages that may seem to be a little bit more obscure or, or a lot of things you don't see in the English, um, the way they get translated. We're going to see that tonight. We're going to see how uh, most of our Bibles translate this one particular issue, and and so we miss it. We don't we don't see what's going on, um, and they and what, what what turns out is these things are hugely important. And when you know them, all of a sudden it begins to connect your Bible to other places and other sections, and your Bible comes alive and and more real in a lot of different ways. So um, that's what that's what we're doing. The way the the book is structured, it's structured with a part one and a part two. And so the part one just kind of goes through a multitude of different Old Testament passages. And part two then turns around and goes through a multitude of New Testament passages. So I'm doing it a little bit different. I'm not just following through going one at a time. I'm taking one of them out of the Old Testament. And then next week I'll take one out of the New Testament and kind of going back and forth. Um, I... uh, uh, the other thing is I'm not going to cover every single one that's in the book. I'm just going to I'm just kind of taking some ones that I, I think would you know work better in a class setting like this. So if you read it, if you get the book or if you pop it online and look at the table of contents and and there's one that you really hope we do, let me know. So I make sure that that we cover it and we go through it because so, I want to you know, I'm be interested to see what you don't want to be bored with as well. So um, and we'll, we'll go through it that way. Hey, Robert. Uh, all right, so um, so some of the subjects we've gone through so far, um, and again, I'm not going to do a deep uh, dive into you know the, wh- where we've been, but just kind of let you know if you're you know, uh, new to the study, we, we've we've um, we've looked at 
Uh, I like it's got a lot of interesting titles. The Ancient's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, cosmology in the Old Testament. They didn't see the world the way we understand the world. Very much, a lot of things in the scripture are what's called, they're, they're called perspectival. In other words, they are described from how they're observed. I'll give you a perfect for instance. Um, uh, you know, uh, we, might, we might, in a conversation with somebody, say, hey, I'll meet you at sunrise tomorrow. Okay, what we don't say is I'll meet you when the earth's rotation hits the very moment that the timing is such that the rays of the sun strike through the atmosphere where the colors come. We don't say that. We say I'll meet you at sunrise. But is the sun actually rising? No, the sun's not actually rising. Do we know it's not rising? Yes, we know it's not rising. But do we have a problem saying I'll meet you at sunrise? No, because from our perspective, it's sunrise. Okay, so there's a lot of things that are in the scripture that are from a perspectival, written perspectively. They're written from a perspective. And, um, and so they, they, you know, uh, most of this was written pre, uh, pre-scientific era. They didn't actually study the, the, um, uh, the cosmos or even, um, even uh, the, the world, nature, the same way we do. They didn't have the tools to study a lot of it the way we do. So a lot of it were observations and how they understood it. But when you understand that and you know that and you begin to look through the text, you see it everywhere. You see it all over the place. And all of a sudden things start to make sense. Another one we looked at was walking like an Israelite. These guys were people of their times. Um, if you were to meet an Israelite in the ancient Near East, you, you would look like any other person in the ancient Near East. You wouldn't know any different. And so much in the scripture that is foreign to us isn't specific to Israel. It's specific to ancient Near Eastern culture. And so what does that tell us? Well, when we find those things that are distinct and different, there's a reason. Now it draws our attention. So if we know a little bit about ancient Near Eastern culture and we're reading along and all of a sudden something jumps out and goes, that's different. Why is that different? What's it trying to tell us? And the, and, and the author includes those things so that we really get a feel for what God's trying to reveal to us. Um, even the Bible needed upgrading. In other words, understanding what inspiration was. We talked about some issues with the original text and, and how that can be really helpful. We talked about why circumcision. That's a weird thing. You know, what, what's circumcision all about? Besides the fact that circumcision was practiced by multiple people groups, why was this, why was this so important to Israel? Um, and we went through the abandoned child in the, ba- in the basket case, Moses in the basket. You know, what, what's behind that story? We, we looked at, uh, I like this one, a tale of courage we never teach. It's about Moses' wife Zipporah when, when she circumcises her son and calls Moses a, bride, a true bridegroom of blood. What in the world was that all about? That was fun to study. Um, and then we, we looked at this thing called a sin offering, um, which is really all about purification. And, and that is going to be, the fact that we did that is going to be really important for what we're going to look at tonight. And uh, I'll just use that as a little commercial for where we're going tonight. And so I'll bring it up. I'll mention it when we get there. Um, uh, but then we switched over to the New Testament, and we've, we've looked at Jesus declaring war. Uh, what's this about the gates of hell shall not prevail? Why did he say that? Where did that come from? Um, guardian angels. You know how the scripture talks about there are angels. There are angels assigned to people and how we may very well entertain an angel and not even know it. In the Bible, and, you know, how many people know this? This is kind of interesting. In the Bible, there's not once that an angel appears and has wings. For us, it's ubiquitous. Angels have wings. In the Bible, angels always appear as men. If, if, if there are oftentimes people who have met an angel, they didn't even know it. 
And so, in fact, Paul, uh, the, the, the um, uh, author in the New Testament says, you need to be very hospitable because you may well entertain an angel and not even know it. They're like, ooh, so be nice to strangers. <laughs> uh, I think, well, never mind. So the New Testament, um, you know, the, the, a lot of times we'll hear people say, well, that wasn't, you know, the New Testament. Why did it quote the Old Testament that way? When I look it up, it looks different. And so we studied that. How, how come that happens? There, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Um, when, did, when did he see that? What was that about? That was fascinating to do. Uh, um, he, he compares himself to the healing serpent. And, and how many of you remember the story of Jesus walking on the water? We looked at that one. What was the meaning behind that? It wasn't just, you know, Jesus like, hey, this is a shortcut across the water here. There's actually a reason for it. And, and it spoke to the disciples in a way that other things couldn't have you know, demonstrating who he was. And then last week, we covered, uh, this is a funny one, Dumbledore meets Philip and Peter. Um, you know, the whole story about Simon the Magician. What's that story about? And, uh, and you know, what, what, what is often taken from it and what's missed um, uh, that, that um, we really should take from it? And we, that's what we covered last week. All right. So tonight, what we're going to look at is the devil's in the details. The devil's in the details. So this is going to be, um, we're going to look at something very specific about the feast called the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. There's something very specific about that that doesn't come out in a lot of our Bibles. A lot of our translations have it, but some don't, um, about this particular character in there, um, this dark character. And uh, we'll get to it. That's where we're going to go. Next week, we're going to cover the subject of destiny and destination. What's destiny and destination about? Um, and that's where we're going to go in our, for our New Testament subject next week. All right. You all ready for this? All right. Let's do this. So the devil's in the details. If you, if you have the book and you want to read this section, it'll be on page 35. Um, I'm going to quote here from Heiser. He opens up and he says this. He says, um, um, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is described in Leviticus 16. Um, described in Leviticus 16, is a central element of the Jewish faith, even though it's not practiced today as it was in ancient times. So Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, is a hugely important biblical feast, biblical holiday, even today within um, uh, contemporary Judaism. Um, uh, it was, it's a very central uh, element. So, um, so to, to see kind of where it fits, where it sets, what I want to do is just take a minute and look at what's called the annual feasts. These are and the, there are seven annual celebrations, and we're going to find this really interesting parallel. Um, there are seven annual feasts. In the Bible, the first month of the year is called the month of Aviv. Um, and Aviv is an agricultural term that just means when the barley is ready to be harvested. That's what it means. It's, a, it's, the, it's when the barley is in Aviv. When it comes to that time that it's ready to be harvested, that's the first month of the year. And so they call it Aviv. And that, that month is the first month. Now, in the first month, we have, um, on the 10th of the month, they, um, so, uh, they go out and they choose the Passover lamb. And then on the 14th of the month, they have Passover. And on the 15th of the month, for seven days, they have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in the middle of that week, there's a feast called the Feast of First Fruits. Um, and we'll see some of the significance of those in a minute. And that first month begins 
a cycle of seven. Seven feasts. What are the feasts? The, the first three, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. We'll look at them in a minute. And, and, and then we go uh, fast forward 50 days. We get to Pentecost. Penta, 50. Uh, Shavuot, weeks. It's 50, uh, seven, seven sevens later, seven weeks. Um, and, and then we move to the fall. And in the fall, there's this fascinating parallel. The first day of the seventh month is also a new year. Anybody ever heard of Rosh Hashanah? Anybody heard of that? The Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. That's the, sep- the first day of the seventh month. So you have a Aviv one. That's about the biblical New Year. And then you have Rosh Hashanah. That's like a civil New Year. So there's kind of a couple of calendars, just like we have different calendars. You know, we have a, we have a, um, anybody in, involved in school system at all? I mean, you know, the school system has a different calendar than our annual, you know. School doesn't start in January 1, not for us. You have a school calendar. Um, some people have fiscal calendars, work calendars. You have, we have the annual calendar. Same thing in the Bible. So in the, seventh, the first day of the seventh month, there's a civil new year where you're count, that they count the years from that calendar. Um, but they start the biblical feast from Aviv. Um, and then on the tenth day of, of Tishrei, the seventh month, is the Day of Atonement. Now notice, in the, first, in the first month, you're choosing the Passover lamb. In the seventh month, you have the Day of Atonement. That's fascinating to me. And then you go, you go five days later, um, and, and you get to a seven-day feast in both months. On the 15th day, you have a seventh-day feast, the unleavened bread. In the, in the 15th day of Tishrei, you have a seven-day feast, the Feast of Booths. Now, on the seventh month, you have an eighth day added to the end. In the first month, you have an eighth day added to the beginning. So it's like this whole mirror image going on in the Bible with these feasts in this calendar and these cycles that are going on. And this happens every seven months. So every six months, you're st- you have a set of feasts. Every six months, you have your seven, first month, six months go by. Seventh month starts, a, starts another cycle. And so we see these cycles of redemption going through the biblical calendar. So, um, and they follow the agricultural cycle. They follow the cycle of life. They follow the harvest seasons, and, um, and the very much of the harvest is how you participate in these things. So, just a basic summary of these things. These are called, in Hebrew, the word is moedim. Everybody say moedim. Very good. Now, you, again, man, we got Hebrew experts. So, moed is single, singular, plural, moedim. It's an appointed time. It's like an appointment on your calendar. So these are God's appointed times. These are times he's appointed in Israel. Um, and so um, there are seven annual ones. There's, there's more than seven in the Bible, but there's seven that are yearly. Um, and they represent his cycles of redemption, his cycles of sanctification, uh, uh, of, of setting apart. And they, they also unfold God's plan, his, his plan. Now, in the spring... That's uh, the first. That's the the first month of the year. It's fascinating how these first four feasts were fulfilled with exacting precision by Jesus. On Passover, Jesus is what the Passover Lamb. On the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he's literally in the tomb. What happens on Unleavened Bread? You're removing the leaven. What did Jesus do? Remove sin. On the first Feast of First Fruits is the first harvest of the barley. You can't touch any of it until you have given it to the Lord. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. 
At that very uh, uh, timing, Jesus is resurrected. Fifty days later, on the harvest festival of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit pours out into the body of Christ for a harvest within humanity. It's fascinating how these things, in the same day that the tradition teaches us that that was the day that God spoke the Ten Commandments and covenanted with Israel, forming the nation of Israel. That very day, Pentecost, is the day the Holy Spirit fills the church and covenants, brings the new covenant into fulfillment in the world. Um, so then we move to the fall feast, and what was interesting is that these feasts are partially fulfilled. Uh, there, there is a blessed hope. They speak to not only what Jesus has done, but to what he's going to do. They speak to his return. And the very first one is the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets is what? Is a, is a sense of, of New Year. That happens to be the day Jesus was born. That was, we, we actually have biblical evidence that Jesus was born on that day. It's not December 25th. It was actually uh, Tishrei 1, and that's another study. We might do it sometime. It's a really cool study. It's a lot of fun. Um, but it also is a picture of the return of Christ. Why? Because it tells us at the last trumpet, Jesus is returning multiple times. It's pictured over and over. Jesus will be returning. The king will be reigning. Kings reign on the trumpets. Number two, Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, and this is what we're going to get into tonight. The Day of Atonement is both national atonement for the nation. It's the cleansing of the temple. It's the renewal of the relationship. It is also considered the day of judgment. Isn't that fascinating? It's both the day of atonement and the day of judgment. We know Jesus is returning, and we know both of those things are going to happen. Um, uh, uh, what's really interesting to me is there is another feast. I'm probably going to say this later, but I'll, I'll throw it in here. Um, there's another feast that happens every 50 years. It's called the Day of Jubilee. On the Day of Jubilee, all slaves are set free. All land is returned. Um, all debt is wiped away. Everything is reset. The Day of Jubilee is another picture of the return of Christ. Do you want to know what day it happens on? Pick a day, I guess. The Day of Atonement. It happens on the Day of Atonement. The trumpet is blown on the Day of Atonement, and everything resets. The Jubilee occurs. And then after that, we have the Feast of Tabernacles, which is Christ with us, tabernacling among us. And again, just a picture of Christ returning and dwelling with us, even as he, has, he is now with us and will yet be with us bodily and physically. So these fall feasts have a partial um, expression in Christ now and have a full expression coming. Now, the Day of Atonement is literally considered the holiest day of the year in the annual calendar. This day is considered the most holy day. Why? Because it is the day that, that we are purifying the, taber the temple the, 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 or the tabernacle, the, the dwelling place of God and the people of God unto God. It's, it's kind of a renewal day. It's a restoration day. And in fact, it's the only one of the seven, seven appointed days, appointed times, Moedim, that's not a feast. It's a fast. It's a day for introspection. It's a day for confession. It's a day for reflection. It's a fast. It's a day for affliction um, to afflict the flesh in order to renew, restore the spirit. So all of these things happen in the text. Um, so what happens on this? God reveals his holiness. 
there's, there's a blood sacrifice for sin purification. Remember I told you purification happens? Well, when we studied the sin offering, what we discovered is the sin offering was actually a purification offering. It was, it was to, to, to cleanse the outward so that one could enter into renewal. Well, that's going to have a big picture on the Day of Atonement. There's a whole lot of this purification going on through the cleansing of blood in the tabernacle and in the temple. Um, it foreshadows there's a need for an intercessor. There's a need for a high priest. Um, it, it's a picture of the Messiah. It, it foreshadows salvation from wrath, from God's wrath. It pro, and, and, and like I said, it prophesies the day of judgment and jubilee. So all of these things are contained in the day of atonement. And I'm just you know, it's kind of giving us a summary so that there's a little particular aspect we're going to jump into tonight. But, you know, without just jumping into it, not having a, some understanding of what this day is all about. Here's a quote from Heiser. He says, although many Christians have heard of the day, most would be startled to learn that a sinister figure lurks in the shadow of Leviticus 16. So most of us have heard of, how many have heard of the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur before? Anybody never heard of it before? Yom Kippur? Anybody? So everybody's a little bit familiar with it anyway. All right, great. But I don't know how many of us know there is actually a sinister character lurking in the shadows here. And we're going to see it. It's in the text. Um, and when you're going to wear it, why? What's that going to, that's weird, that's strange. Why, why is, why, what's that about? And we're going to find out, we're going to discover. It's pretty interesting. So, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the order of the day. How does this day operate? What, what goes on this day? What does the high priest do? And then we're going to see where this little part of the ritual of the day comes in, and we're going to go, what's that there for? And we're going to explore on that ritual and discover it. And then we're going to see how that actually applies in our lives and how that's really cool and plays right into th- things that we see in the text in the New Testament. All right? So can we do that? We good? All right. Any questions so far? All right. We'll have a time when we can have some discussion, but I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. So here's what happens on the Day of Atonement. Um, there's three, uh, three animals. You have a bull, a ram, and um, uh, actually four animals, a bull, a ram, and two goats. So um, they, 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 they choose a bull from the herd, and this is a sin offering or a purification offering, and they choose a ram as a burnt offering. Now, there's, Leviticus opens up and teaches us about five basic types of offerings. Uh, a burnt offering is one, is something that's burnt up completely. It's like a gift. I'm, I'm burning this up. I'm offering it completely to the Lord. It's like laying my whole life before him. That's a burnt offering. A sin offering, as we talked about in detail, is about purifying. It's a purifying offering. So we get a bull for a sin offering, and they, and they pick a ram for a burnt offering. And now the high priest, the first thing he has to do is he goes, when you walk into the temple or the tabernacle, there's an altar. And behind the altar, there's a laver, this bronze laver. Sometimes you'll see it called in the Bible a sea. A sea doesn't mean like Mediterranean Sea. It's just a big um, a, 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 a bronze basin. Thank you, basin or bath, I was thinking. And, and, they, and they, they go through a water purifying ritual. So this water bath, it's, it's, think of it more like baptism than washing. It's not a, they didn't know about, they didn't know about um, germs and things like that. It's not a washing from germs. It's a purifying washing. It's the water. It's the water picturing the water and washing everything off. So he does this. He, he gets undressed and he goes through this water ritual. And he puts on these holy garments that are made of linen. They're white made of linen. So he takes off the high priestly garments. Now, that's really important. 
I don't know how many people ever heard this. The, the high priestly garments are really fascinating. They're incredibly beautiful. They're very complex. And on the bottom of them, they have, um, they have uh, um, golden bells and pomegranates all tied to the bottom. And there's an, there's an old wives' tale that says that the reason why the high priest has those bells on there, because once a day on the Day of Atonement, when he goes into the Holy of Holies, if, if he falls over dead, you know, you can hear him walking around. He's got a rope tied on him, and if he falls over dead, because they, they know because the bells aren't ringing. The problem with that, it's an old wives' tale, and the reason why it's an old wives' tale, and you, it's in the text, you can read it, check it out, Leviticus 16. He actually takes those garments off. He doesn't wear those into the Holy of Holies. So that can't be the purpose of it. So, um, so it's not, not what's going on. He, he, he takes them off, and he puts on these pure white garments, these very special holy garments that are only used on uh for this purpose when he goes in there um and and i mean literally these are from undergarments all the way to overgarments up to a turban uh that's on his head uh, a head a head covering um and then he takes the incense sensor um and he fills it with fire from the altar and he puts sweet incense on it and he goes in behind the veil into the holy of holies and he allows that this the incense this whole cloud to cover over and that cloud kind of like protects him from the holiness of god because he's in the most holy place of the sanctuary this is this is as close you can get to the presence of god um on earth in 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 this place and the only time he can go in is once a year now what's fascinating is the book of revelation connects this incense sensor connects it specifically to our prayers which is which what the book of revelation is saying is this incense sensor that is literally the closest place you can get to god is like our prayers literally come up before him in that closest place did you know that's what your prayers were like did you know that that's what you're sweet smelling incense to God? So he takes this in there and, and it keeps him. It literally keeps him from dying because he's at, at this place of this close to the holiness. Now, why would he die? Why would he die? I, I like I showed a video a couple of weeks ago um, from Bible Project about holiness. You know, how many know that we, we literally cannot exist without the sun? Literally, all of the energy on earth comes from the sun. Yet what happens the closer you get to the sun? You die. Because we can't stand in the presence of the sun. As good as it is, its goodness is too great for us. We have to be protected from it. It's kind of an analogy. Unless we are protected, unless we are washed, cleansed, made holy, we can't get to, to that close to God. Jesus has to, to remake us so that we can. So that's, that's what's going on here. That's what practice. So the fourth thing that happens is he takes the bull, becomes a purification offering, and that is specifically for the high priest and his household. And then he takes that blood, he sprinkles it on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, and in front of the mercy seat, he does it seven times. And some other day we'll talk about all that. It's all got meaning. And then he takes the ram, which is a burnt offering, and he picks two male goats. Interesting. Very, very interesting, because now we're getting to the thick of it. He takes two male goats. Now, one of them is a purification offering, one of the male goats. But that, in that purification offering, he's already done the bull. That was for him, his household, his family. Now he's doing the goat. That's for the entire congregation of Israel. That's for everybody else. He's going to use that to, to, cleanse, to, to, to cleanse the altar from all of the impurities of the nation. So, but there's two of them, and they're presented to Yahweh, and they're presented at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He brings them right to the entrance, doesn't go in, brings them to the entrance, 
and he casts lots over them. And, and one of them is going to be for Yahweh. And then the other one is going to be for this weird character that all of a sudden comes out of the blue whose name is Azazel. Who in the world is Azazel? And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to get there. Not right now. I'm just introducing it now. But there's one for Yahweh and one for Azazel. All right. So number nine, there's a goat for Yahweh. This, this, this one for Yahweh. Again, it's a purification offering. It's for Israel. The, the same way the bull's blood was sprinkled, he's going to do the same thing with the goat's blood in front of the mercy seat. And, and then after he, he purifies the, uh, the, uh, inside the mercy seat, he then, so uh, I need to tell you this, the tabernacle or the temple is made up of three compartments. The outer compartment, the outer court, is where the main altar is in the labor. And then you have the tent of meeting. You have this holy place. And inside of there, there's the, the menorah, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. And then you have the holy of holies behind that where the Ark of the Covenant is. Um, and so the very first place he was, he was in the Holy of Holies. Now, after he's done purifying in there, he moves out to the tent of meeting, to the holy place, and he purifies in there. And then we're going to find out when he's done there, he comes out to the altar and purifies out there. And so there's this process, starts at the most holy place and comes out with purification. This is all happening on the Day of Atonement. And so in Leviticus 16, he says, thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place. That's referring to the holy of holies. Because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions and all of their sins. And, and, and so shall he do for the tent of meaning. Now, that's referring to the, the second place. The, the, um, the, the, um, so we had the most holy place. Then we had the, ho- the holy place, the tent of meaning, which, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now, what's fascinating is when he's doing this, now, most days, uh, anybody who's a priest, they can go, you know, if they're participating in the temple service, they can go in and out of the tent of meaning. Now, they can't go to the holy place, the holy, most holy place, but they can go in and out of the tent of meaning most days. But when the high priest is doing this, nobody else can go in or out. This is special. This is sacred. This is the holiest day of the year. This is really a sacred moment, a sacred time. Um, and then, uh, and then the high priest, after he's done that, comes out to the altar and he sprinkles blood on the altar. Um, and then we get to this live goat, the second goat. Now something interesting goes on. What happens with this live goat? This is verse 16. I mean, verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. One of these goats, there were two, cast lots. The one that Lot fell for goes to Yahweh. That one's sacrificed. Its blood is used to, to atone, to cleanse. But then we have this live one. It says this, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. Now, that's fascinating because it doesn't just say sins. It says, it says iniquities, transgressions, and sins. And they all have a, a, a little bit of a nuanced difference. Iniquities talks about the bentness of the human heart. Transgressions talks about the rebellion against God and his commands. Sins talks about just the fact that we miss the mark and don't match up to all that we've been created to be. We fall short. And so all of these things, everything about the, the rebellious nature of humanity is then confessed over and onto this live goat. And he shall put them on the head of the goat 
and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let it go free in the wilderness. So, um, so it's a strange little ceremony going on in the middle. What's that all about? We're going to talk about it. So then the high priest, he returns to the tent of meeting. He takes off the linen garments. He, he water bathes again. He puts on his regular priestly garments, and he offers the burnt offering now. We've already done the sin offering, so we have the burnt offering. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasing sacrifice. It's a, it's a, I want to just thank God it's with, with this offering. Then the goat for Azazel, the person who escorts that goat for Azazel into the wilderness, he comes back, bathes his clothes, clothes and, and body, and returns to the congregation. And then all of the skins from all of these animals that were sacrificed, all the, the ones that were sacrificed, they're taken, interestingly enough, outside of the camp, away from everything, and completely burnt. All of these skins that led to the purification and the atonement are taken away from the congregation, outside of the camp, and they're burned. All right. And so um, those that did that then go through a ritual cleansing with the water and all that. And so all, that's uh, in, a, in a nutshell... Believe it or not, you might think, wow, you went through that in detail. I was like, no, I didn't. I actually left a whole lot out. But I just wanted us to see that this wasn't just a simple, you know, they sacrificed an animal, sprinkled it a few times. There is a whole, there's a, a, um, a, a process going on in this day. They're very careful to do it. And, and it, all of it is a picture and representative of how holy God is, how, how far we are from him, and what the extent that this intercessor the high priest goes, notice none of the people are participating. People can't do it for themselves. Somebody has to do it for them. You need an intercessor. You need a high priest to do it for you. You can't do it for yourself. You notice that? People aren't there. This is the high priest doing this. If we don't have an intercessor that does it for us, we have no hope. If there isn't someone doing it on our behalf for, for us, we have no hope. God has to provide the person to do this for us or it can't happen. You notice that? This is huge. This is a part of the picture that we're seeing as we're going through this. All right. So we had a ram for the burnt offering. Uh, at the end, this is a gift to please God. We had this bull for the purification offering. That was for the high priest and his family. And, and uh, quoting Heiser again here, in this case, the sin offering restored the priest to ritual purity, and it allowed him to occupy safe, sacred space, to be near God's presence. He's in sacred space. So he did it for himself first. So he can be in this sacred place in order to do it for everyone else. He didn't do it because, you know, he had a bull because he had the worst sins. No, he's doing it so that he can represent, so he can be doing it on behalf of everyone else. So he could be that intercessor. And so he goes first to do it for himself. And then once he's done that, now he can go about the process to do it as an intercession for everyone else. Now, why the two goats? Once again, why these two goats? This is where we're going. Um, only one was offered to Yahweh for people. Now, what's interesting is if you look at other sacrifices, all throughout, all throughout the, the Torah, all throughout um, uh, uh, Israel's history, it's just one sacrifice is necessary. You don't have to have these two goats. It's just, there's one. You just need the one. So, so if you, I gave you a text if you want to look it up in one place. So why two? The high priest cast lots, and one is chosen. There's lots, and Yahweh chooses one. And that, the one that is chosen, 
becomes the one who purifies the people. So we have a goat that's chosen, and he becomes the goat that becomes a purification, his blood. See, do you see pictures of Jesus in all this? We have an intercessor. We have one who's going before, one who's going on behalf. We have one who's chosen. This is, these are pictures of Jesus all through this. When I first started studying the feast, I was like, you know, these feasts are in the Bible. I'd probably like to understand them. The more I understood them, the more I'm like, oh, these are so much more. But these are about Jesus more than anything else. It's crazy. There's, every, there's so many details. And again, I'm not, we're, just, we're, just, we're hitting some highlights here. But again, what about this second goat? Why is it not sacrificed? Notice it is not sacrificed. It stays alive. And yet the sins of the nation are symbolically transferred onto this goat. And this goat carries these sins where? Into the wilderness to this character named Azazel. What is that about? Let's look at it. All right. So Azazel is a Hebrew word. Um, There it is for because y'all are Hebrew scholars. So I knew you wanted to see the Hebrew letters. So, um, and, and if you're looking at that, um, you're going to read it from right to left. So you read Azazel from left to right, but when you get to the actual Hebrew letters, you're going to start from the left to right. So just if you want to figure out what sound goes with what. All right. Um, the name p- appears four times in the Hebrew in, in Leviticus 16, and it doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture, in the Bible itself. All right. So... Now, some of your translations, you may be looking it up and there's your translation, and what you'll actually see is you won't see Azazel. You'll see it called the goat that goes away. It'll say the goat that goes away, and, and if you have a King James Version, it'll say scapegoat. Anybody ever heard the term scapegoat? That's where it comes from. Hey, he's a scapegoat. What does a scapegoat mean? Scapegoat means the one that, that everyone get, gets the blame for everyone else. Huh. Huh. The one that all the sins are transferred to? The scapegoat. Huh. We use that term all the time in a vernacular. It turns out it has a biblical meaning. Interesting. We use the Bible and don't even know it. So the King James Version translates it as scapegoat. Um, and, but as, because of that, because it's the goat that goes away or the scapegoat, we miss the fact that the Hebrew actually says Azazel. And Azazel... In, ancient, in many ancient Hebrew texts, is actually not a thing, but a name. A name of a very specific being. Isn't that interesting? All right. So it's possible we can use scapegoat, and that's a possibility. However, when we look at the text, and we're going to look at the text right now. We're going to look at the Hebrew. We're going to look at it, and we're going to see the way it's used. It's used in something called a, a, a parallelism, Hebrew parallel. In a way, much is written in Hebrew. Hebrew, Hebrew does this very often. It writes something, and then it writes it again in a, in a parallel fashion, or it gives a parallel statement. Sometimes um, it's a comparison. Sometimes it's a contrast. Sometimes it's a synonym. Sometimes it's an antonym. Um, and it's a, it's a fundamental, basic way of Hebrew thinking in which they present uh, the, their stories, their narratives, their theology, all of this. If you understood that right there, that little thing I just gave you, you can go read the book of Psalms and all of a sudden Psalms will open up to you just applying that. But anyway, that was a, that was a commercial. It didn't have anything to do with this. All right. So in Leviticus 16, chapter, verse 8, here's one of the places we see this. It says, Aaron shall cast lots over two goats. Now notice how it's written. One, for the, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. 
It's written in a parallel fashion. One for this person, one for that person. Not one for this person and one for a thing. Or one for a concept. Or one for an idea. It's one for this person, one for that person. That's how it's written. It's written in a way so that we know it's referencing a name. All right. Um, now, since the phrase for Azazel parallels the phrase for Yahweh, this is a quote from Heiser, um, for the Lord. Um, by the way, so when it says on the, on the text there, so just so you can see it. Um, when you see, when you open, oh, I didn't do it. Sorry, my bad. Oh, uh, that was just my bad copying. See that word Lord there? In, in, uh, in probably everybody's Bible here, that word Lord will be all caps. It won't be, it won't be a capital L with little letters. It'll be all capital letters. Whenever you read the word Lord in your Bible and it's all caps, it's literally translating the word Yahweh. That's, it's t- translating the name of Yahweh. In fact, I, 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 I see it so often that very often when I'm reading the scriptures, I don't even read Lord. I just say Yahweh because I know what it's translating. All right. So the word suggest the wording suggests the two divine fi- that two divine figures are being contrasted by the two goats. There's two divine figures. You have Yahweh, and you have this other divine figure. Who is this? Why would he be there? What's why on the holiest day? What's going on here? So a strong case can be made for translating the term as the name Azazel. Ancient Jewish texts show that Azazel was understood as a demonic figure associated with guess what the wilderness associated with the wilderness this was this is well attested in 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 jewish literature here this is uh, from the mishnah this is uh, around 200 a.d this is uh, the passage yoma 6 6 it records that the goat for azazel was led to a cliff and pushed over ensuring it would die and not return so what, what, the, what the mission is saying is even though the Bible said that we're supposed to let it go free, we didn't ever want the goat to came back, so we should take it to a cliff and push it off and make sure it died. Because we wanted our sins to stay there with Azazel, not come back. And that's, that's what it's recording. It's telling us this. And they understood that this was a name. They clearly understood it and interpreted it as the name of this, of this divine uh, being. So, um, chapter, if we, if we go to the book of Enoch, now I'm quoting from, um, uh, this is a quote I, I switched over, and I'm quoting from a, a, another source called Reversing Hermon. This is also by Heiser. Um, and he tells us in the book of Enoch, if you, if you look at the, book, the story of the book of Enoch from chapter 6 through 16, they tell the story of the watchers who rebel in Genesis 6. tells that story. Um, and there's two stories there in the Enoch that are kind of woven together. Now watch this. In one... The leader of the fallen angels is named Asael, or Azazel, in the Ethiopian text. And the primary sin is an improper revelation, improper revealing, in other words, idolatry. Um, in the other, the leader is Shemihaza, and the primary sin is the marriage with humans and the procreation of giants that we read about in Genesis 6. So the watchers, again, quoting from Her- uh, Reversing Hermon, the watchers are bound in the abyss until the end of days and are released and then recaptured to be thrown in the lake of fire. That's what, if you read the book of Peter, both 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude all reference that. The, the angels that are kept in Tartarus, that's what they're referencing, um, that, that text there. Um, so readers that are familiar with the Enochian material and on the lake of the fire, 
Know that some Enochian texts single out the leader of the watchers. What's name he goes by? Asahel is one version, Azazel, Shemihaza, for special mention in these judgment texts. These are divine rebels um, uh, who are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this is a very close parallel um, to New Testament statements, in particular, the scene of Satan's judgment in Revelation. Very close parallel, if you read Revelation 20, where Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, this divine rebel who leads humanity astray. Isn't that fascinating? Um, so some, some, uh, some scholars, some Christian scholars, actually think that this Asahel, this Azazel, is actually another name, just a different name for Lucifer, for Satan. Um, others think he might be one of the, the, um, the, the leader of the, the watchers who rebel in Genesis 6. Um, but um, clearly he's identified as one of the fallen divine beings who bring corruption and lead humans astray, akin to, to Satan or one of the watchers like that. So that's who this Azazel is. He is, a, he is a rebel seeking to destroy humanity. In the Gospels, Satan comes to like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. It says um, he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so here you have this um, a divine being um, uh, that is on this day, and this goat, this live goat, notice there's no sacrifice to him. This live goat, the sins are transferred, they're sent out to the wilderness. To, to this person. Now, why? Why would, why, would, why would that be part of this ritual, this Day of Atonement? Well, let's talk about why the wilderness for a minute. The Bible specifically, and we're going to see it. We've all read it. If you've read the New Testament ever, you've read this. The Bible specifically associates the wilderness with the home of evil. Check this out. Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by who? The devil. Fascinating. He was led by the Savior. He's baptized. Holy Spirit comes on him. He's going out to the wilderness. And it is a motif. It's throughout, throughout Scripture. The, the wilderness is associated with the... With, why? Because you can't, you know, it's, there's a symbolism to it. How many people can just, you know, go just arbitrarily live in the desert? It's a really hard place to live. It's associated with death. And so, and, and so it becomes symbolic for that. Okay? And... You know, how many, how many stories have we heard, people out in the desert? I mean, even the Bible tells stories about people. Hagar, she's with, with her son. She's out in the desert. She thinks she's going to die. Why? Because she's in the wilderness. She can't live there. She doesn't have water. God saves her. And so this picture, it's not a hard picture for us to get, to see. It just is a different way of us thinking about these texts. All right. So why a goat sent to this dark power, power in wilderness? Why? Why do that? Um, first of all, prior to all this going on, there were actually Israelites in the ancient world who were actually sacrificing goats to goat demons in the wilderness. That's what they're doing. They're, this, they're, they're practicing this idolatry. Here it is. I'll show you in the text. It's Leviticus 17. So David Thomas in Leviticus 16. This is the next chapter right after that. What's it say? So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute for, forever for them throughout their generations. God's saying that is idolatrous 
false worship. You don't fear. And, you know, why would they be doing it? Because they're fearing them. They're afraid of them. They want to appease them. They want to give them a sacrifice. It's like, it's like what people do is like, well, I got to break a curse. They go through these rituals. This happens all the time, all over the place. Well, you know, I got to, I dropped a pinch of salt. I got to throw a pinch of salt over my shoulder so bad luck doesn't happen. Oh, I broke a mirror. I walked under a, a, a ladder. I went through, a, you know, a black, I walked across the path of a black cat. All these things. You're fearing darkness. Stop fearing darkness. That's idolatry. It's what the Lord is saying to them here. Stop sacrificing to goat demons. Fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. You want to fear something? Fear the Lord. Wisdom begins there. Offer your heart to Him. Walk right with Him. So we follow the Day of Atonement with these things that are leading people in the wrong way. All right. So the Day of Atonement literally changes everything. It changed. No more goat demon sacrifices. The only sacrifice is to Yahweh. You send a live goat to the wilderness. Why? Because that's the home of evil. That's unholy ground. That's the demonic domain. And that, what are you sending? You're sending your sins back. Do you get the picture? Before sending it, they transfer the sins of the people to it. And when they do, they're sending this goat with their sins back to the wilderness. They're sending the sins of the people back to where they came. Back to the, doma, the demonic domain. Back to where they belong. It's the day of atonement. We're purifying. We're taking all of this sin. We're not sacrificing anything to that. We're not fearing that. We're fearing God. We're going to live for God. And we're going to take all of the sin, all of the rebellion, all of the iniquity, all of the transgression... Transfer it to the goat and send it back in the wilderness, back where it came from. Back to Azazel, the leader of rebellion on earth. So the, the sacrifice goat, what does it do? It purifies the place of access to God. It renews and restores the place to draw near to God. It reveals God's true identity, His mercy, His holiness, His desire to draw near. It restores, it re- uh, um, renews, it reconciles. The sacrificed one. Do you get the picture? Do you see what's happening now? And because we don't understand this, this, this little Azazel, what's this Azazel thing? This, you know, the goat that goes away. We miss the impact. All right. The live goat carries sins away back to the realm of darkness. All right. So, before I finish up, when I say our discussion time. This is our time we get to talk. Um, before we find out what Heiser has to say and how he closes it out, got a little bit from Heiser. I actually have a quote from a couple of other places as well I want to close out with. But before I do that, Let's, it's time for us to talk about all this. How does the live goat from Azazel, and I've given lots of hints here. In fact, I've gone more than hints. So i just come out and said it. So how does the live goat that's for Azazel remind you of the work of Jesus? How, how now that you've seen this picture and what's going on here, how does that remind you of the work of Christ? So we're going to open it up now. And um, just raise your hand, and we'll, we'll go one at a time. Go ahead.
Yeah, this second goat is symbolic of the people taking the sins on itself. Okay, it's, it's representative of the people taking on the people's sins. Is that the connection you're making? Okay, so we see one connection here. It, it, Jesus took our sins on, right? It says, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says what? He says, Jesus who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus took on our sin in the same way this goat takes on the sins of the people. The sins are transferred. There's a parallel. I like that. That's good. I'll take it. What else? Whoa, now we're getting, yeah, that's good. Yes, this is good. Yeah, so the Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified outside the camp. He was crucified outside, very much like the skins that were burnt outside, very much like the goat that goes outside into the wilderness. Why? Because he was taking on the sin of the world. And so there's this parallel here. There's this understanding. We can understand what Christ did as we look at the motifs that came before him in which he did it. It's good. What else? Yeah, so um, the text is very clear that um, in, in multiple places that, uh, that like, the, like the, 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 the animals that they sacrificed, they didn't, they didn't burn the skin for the, for the sin offering. They didn't burn the skin on the altar. Um, they would skin it. And, and then they would take what was left of the animal that wasn't burnt. What are you going to do with it? Well, they would burn it up. It was holy. Because it was dedicated to God, and you didn't want to just let it rot and bury. And so you would burn it up so it would be completely consumed. But you didn't do it in the camp because, because it's death. Death is not appropriate to be in the camp. Death needs to be taken outside the camp. So they would take it outside of the camp, and they would burn it away so death would not contaminate the camp. So that the death, it, that, that, the death of those... Those components of the animal that were dead could not... Com- the, the single most contaminating, ritually contaminating thing is, is death. Dead people, dead animals, if you touch those, you're, 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 you're contaminated outwardly. And so they would take this outside of the camp so it doesn't contaminate, and they burn them so they can't contaminate. Well, where was Jesus crucified? He literally was taken outside of Jerusalem to Golgotha. And the writer of Hebrews makes that explicit, that he was crucified outside the camp. Why? Because his death was our impurity removed. Death was removed so that that which was meant to be alive could not be contaminated by death. You follow? Is that helpful? Okay. Yeah, so he was put in the tomb and he resurrected. Yes. Yeah, that would be a different motif. The, him, the goat going away doesn't really picture resurrection. The goat going away is more a picture of sin going away. Okay? Um, the Day of Atonement isn't so much a picture of resurrection. Um, uh, 
it's it's more um, a picture of the the removal of sin, and which then there's I'm, I'm getting ready to say some things. I'm going to hold uh, Paul. Um, so, yeah, Jesus really died. That would be, so there's two goats. Both goats picture Christ. One was the sacrifice to purify. One was the live goat that carried away. Jesus did both. Jesus really died to purify. Jesus um, also carried the sins away into the wilderness, return them back to the... Oh, I'm telling stuff. Never mind. Yeah. The, the, oh, you mean, you mean in the Mishnah where they talk about they killed him? Yeah. Yeah, they didn't want it coming back. Yeah, this is... Yeah. I, I follow what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Um, hang on. I think there was a hand over here first. Then you, Mabel. Did somebody have a hand up over here? Okay, Mabel, go. Yeah, this is, yeah, so the question is, is that the same as G, the, the goat that goes in the wilderness to carry him away? Right. This is prophesied in Jeremiah. I will remember your sins no more as far as the east is from the west. This is the picture of forgiveness, cutting them off, sever them, no longer. Um, uh, um, you know, it's interesting. He doesn't say as far as the north is from the south. Why? Because if you keep going north, eventually you're going south. You return. But if you keep going east, you'll never go west. If you keep going west, you'll never go east. As far as the east from the west, you can never reach the other going in that direction. That's why our sins are as far as the east is from the west, not the north from the south. Yes. Exactly. You can, you can never go west traveling east. You can never go east traveling west. As far as the east is from the west, they will never meet. If you're traveling in that direction, you're always traveling in that direction, which is different than north and south. Okay. Why don't we jump back and see what Heiser has to say to close us out? All right. Let's 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 go. Let's finish up. Good discussion. Yeah, this is good thinking. Y'all are y'all are seeing it. You're catching the picture here. That's really really good. All right. Let's see how Heiser finishes this out. So when Jesus dies on the cross for all of humanity's sins, he's crucified outside the city, paralleling the sins of the people being cast to the wilderness via the goat of Azazel. The same way that goat's going out to the wilderness, Jesus is is crucified outside the city away. Jesus dies once for all sinners, negating the need for the ritual. We no longer need the ritual. Jesus does it once for all. Um, now I'm going to quote from, this is a scholar named Greg Boyd, and uh, he takes what's called a Christus Victor view of the atonement, on which but doesn't really, you know, it's beyond it tonight. He's talking about the atonement and one way to look at and understand the atonement. And I love some of his quotes. He has an incredible understanding of the atonement, what Jesus did. Christ did 
whatever it took to release us from slavery to the powers. What's the Day of Atonement doing? Releasing the people from slavery to... We're sending that which enslaved, the sins, the transgressions, the iniquities, back to you. Releasing the slavery from the powers. We're sending them back. This And this he did by becoming incarnate. Jesus became a man, living an outrageously loving life in defiance of the powers. Freeing the people from the oppression of the devil through healings and exorcisms. If you read the Bible and all of a sudden you get to the New Testament, it's not till you get to the Gospels that all of a sudden you see demons confronted over and over by Jesus. And what's he doing? He is, he is freeing the people from the evil powers in this world. And he does it by becoming a man, doing whatever, humbling himself, humiliating himself, and bringing that life um, uh, to us, teaching the way of self-sacrificial love, and most definitely by his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. He paid the price needed to bring us and the whole of creation into God's salvation. Everything Jesus was about manifested Calvary-like love. Notice he keeps bringing this point up, and it's awesome. Everything Jesus did, he does from a motive of love. He loves us. Why? He wants to free us. He wants to set us free from, the, from, the, from these powers. And so what is, how does he act? He act? By becoming one of us, by leaving his place of glory, taking on the form of a servant, um, and confronting the, 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 the dark forces and powers loving the, the, um, uh, those who others didn't love. Christ-like love should therefore be seen as acts of war against the destructive powers that seek to keep people from living in God's love. The central call of every disciple is to imitate this life, manifest this kingdom, and thereby engage in this warfare. When we act in a way, you know, there's a, there's a picture in Matthew called, uh, uh, called the sheep and the goats. It's a day of judgment. And we're all going to stand before Jesus, and he's going to separate us like sheep and a goats. And he's going to say, one, you, 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 uh, you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me in prison, you, um, uh, you visited me when I was sick, uh, you did this, you did that, come on in. And he's going to say to the other, you didn't feed me, you didn't visit me in prison. You didn't help me when I was sick. You didn't, and, and, and they're going to go, and both of them are going to go, you, Lord? Wait, wait. Oh, I don't re- I see what you look like now. I don't remember seeing that my entire life. When, 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 when re- I would have definitely helped you. Oh, no, no, no. When you do it to the least, you've done it to me. When you've done it to the least, You've done it to me. And to the ones he's going to say, You're, you have no part in me. You have no part in me. Now look, it's not teaching a work salvation. This is the parable in Matthew. Matthew 25. Go look it up. What he's saying is, if you actually say you have the faith of Christ, you're going to be living like Christ. That's how he says, they will know you are his disciples by your love. Um, and so that's actual warfare we are to purge our lives of every thought attitude and behavior that is inconsistent with god's character and reign as defined by calvary anything that is inconsistent with calvary 
And we are therefore to manifest in defiance of the powers, the loving character and reign of God in all that we think, feel, and do. We are to put off all that is old in order to manifest what is new. We are to imitate God by living in Calvary-like love. In this way, we participate in and further expand the victory that Christ has accomplished. We become bearers of the kingdom of God and proclaim to the powers the victorious wisdom of the cross. What we're saying, this is what we're saying. What we're saying is that thing that you had enslaved me in, Jesus became the goat who returned that to you, and now I am going to live towards others to let them know that they can have all that that you did, enemy, to ensnare them, put on Jesus, and return back to you so they don't have to live ensnared like in, in it themselves. And that is spiritual warfare. That's pictured in sending that goat back to the wilderness, back to Azazel. We have no part in you. And here's the scripture verse. I didn't write it. Here's a scripture verse in Colossians, one of my favorite verses. It says this, And God, through the cross, through the work of Christ, by faith, translates us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And I didn't have to go anywhere for that to happen. And yet it completely happens where I'm translated out of one into another. By the work of Christ. Because Jesus takes it and returns. He takes, he returns that uh, which enslaved me back to the one who is the enslaver. Amen? Is that not cool? Interesting. Now you all know about Azazel. Now you'll read the Day of Atonement a whole different way. Hopefully. And you'll see that, that what we get to when we get to our New Testament and we start reading these things and studying these, these aren't new. They've been there all along. They've been part of the practice the whole time. They're just manifested in, in a way um, uh, that brings a, a whole new reality that sets the world free. All right. So next week, we're going to talk about destiny and destination. What a perfect fitting thing to discuss after this week, huh? Destiny and destination. So good discussion. I'm going to close in prayer. Um, after we do, um, we've, uh, again, I hit my goal. We finished up a little bit early. We got a chance. Please make sure you greet one another. We have some time to chat and fellowship. If there's a, does anyone here have a particular prayer need? Anybody? Okay. Diane does. Anybody else? And Mabel does. All right. So if the two of you would do me a favor, right after we close out, if you'll stand on the side here, and if people will please go meet with them and pray with them. Some people can gather around. Some people can gather around with Mabel and pray with her. Some people can gather around with Diane and pray with her. And the rest, if we, you can help me out with the chairs and just greet one another. If you, now, if you have a particular question and, and there's something that came up you don't understand, you want to talk about, I'll be here. Come on down. And people want to gather around and talk around, we can do that as well. But I want us to take a few minutes, not just rush out. I finished a little early on purpose so we can fellowship a little bit and pray for one another. So if you all will please help with that in, in the chairs. Lord, we bless you. We thank you for your word that, that uh, speaks these things to us to help us to see them, to understand them, to appreciate them. Father, I'm just amazed by uh, what you have uh, put in your word for us to feast on. May we, may we be uh, refreshed, renewed, restored, um, uh, have greater understanding of exactly what it is you have done for us, set us free, returned 
um, taken our sin from us, returned it to the place from which it came, separated them from us as far as the east is from the west. We thank you for that victory on the, on the cross, on Calvary. You took them on on our behalf. You are our high priest. You are the sacrifice that purifies. You are the goat that carries away our sins. You've destroyed the work of the dark ones, the dark powers. We bless you. May that be not just an idea and a concept in our mind, but may it be the reality of our lives that we may live it and desire to, to help others to see it and live it, to be free and to walk in it. In Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right. So, yeah, if, if some people can pray with Diane over there and some people pray with Mabel over here, and then.